Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibuglani. Dr. Ashish Jha has emerged as one of the leading medical figures during the COVID pandemic, dispensing evidence-based information and insights in a clear and helpful way through hundreds of interviews with TV, print, and radio journalists, with more than a few podcasts thrown in for a good measure. Dr. Jha, currently Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, was on the faculty of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health for many years and is recognized as one of the leading health policy scholars in the nation. One small world connection, we actually had his medical school roommate, Dr. Josh Sharfstein, on the podcast a few months back, and uh, that must have been quite the power room uh, back in the day and continues to be today. So, Dr. Jha, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Raise Line. Hey, Shiv, thanks so much for having me here. So our, our audience obviously probably seen you on TV and knows a lot about you, but just for good measure, do you mind giving us a sense of what got you interested in public health and medicine to begin with? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. goes back to college. And, you know, I think I can admit it now, given how many years it's been. Uh, if we're going to be honest, part of it was clearly driven by the fact that my parents really, really, and particularly my mom, really, really, really wanted one of her sons to be a doctor. And my older brother had zero interest. So it was me or bust. And as an immigrant kid from India who felt like, oh, I really should think about this, I have to say that was definitely a big part of the influence. You know, it was interesting though, Shiv, is I arrived in medical school and I loved it. I fell in love with medicine. So I wasn't, I'm not sure I went for the right reasons, but I certainly stayed for the right reasons. I just decided medicine was awesome. Why did I think it was awesome? Because it gives you all of these really interesting and important skills you can use uh, to alleviate suffering, to make people's lives better. And that was very powerful. And then the only other thing I'll say is, you know, during medical school, as I started on the wards and started seeing patients, I quickly realized that so much of what shaped people's lives that landed them in the emergency department or landed them in the hospital really was outside of traditional kind of sphere of medicine, right? It was about where they lived and the neighborhoods they lived in and what kind of food they had and jobs they had. And I thought about that and I thought about how do I help people uh, more broadly and realize that that's the purview of public health. And so even back in medical school, I started taking classes at the public health school just because I wanted to understand all of that broader context. And my love of medicine and love of public health has never really diminished. And I've tried my whole life to try to keep both going. Well, that's a very relatable story. I mean, I'm a son of immigrants and immigrant myself. And I joke, I'm the black sheep of the family because I still haven't gotten my doctorate. I haven't finished med school at Hopkins. I left to start osmosis, but one day I'll make my mom proud and go back. Um, So after earning your medical degree, you went and did an MPH. You could have done an MBA and all sorts of other things and ways to contribute to public health. But what specifically has been most impactful to you within your public health career pre-COVID? You know, I think the reason I got an MPH and the reason I um, really loved practicing and being in public health was I spent most of that time being a researcher. And, you know, research is a funny thing, right? Because a lot of times you think the output of research is papers and grants, but it's not. I mean, papers are really important, but papers are only as important as much as they shape thinking and as much as they shape the world and, and help people make better decisions on things. And I loved spending most of my time doing research because I felt like I could help answer questions that policymakers and clinical leaders needed to answer to make smarter choices about how our healthcare system is structured, how we pay for healthcare, how uh, new delivery models, what's the role of information technology. There's all these issues that I worked on because I thought they were important to improving the health system. 
And the only way to really have done that was to have gotten an MPH with really good research training. So that's, that's what pulled me into MPH and then ultimately kept me in it. Awesome. Um, and so you recently made the switch from Harvard School of Public Health to become Dean of Brown. I actually, I did my thesis research in college at, with Diane Wirth out at HSPH. She's awesome. So I spent a lot of time uh, probably in the same halls, maybe even past you in the halls yeah. at the time. How has been adjusting to, to Brown and being the dean of that program, especially during the COVID crisis? How, can you tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, so there are two parts of that, right? Which is one is switching jobs, which is always interesting. And the second is switching jobs in the middle of a pandemic, which I would not recommend to most people. Uh, look, Harvard's a great place. I spent 16 years there. Uh, it's a wonderful school of public health, great university. But I was ready for a new opportunity. And Brown is different. It's smaller. Uh, it's far more interdisciplinary. And I've always thought that when it comes to public health, if you want to solve the big public health problems of our time, they're not just going to be done by epidemiologists and biostatisticians. You really do need sociologists and anthropologists and economists. And Brown makes that really, really easy. And that, to me, was what attracted me to come to Brown. Uh, now, I decided to come before the pandemic really got going. And arriving at a new university with new colleagues uh, in the middle of a pandemic where I still have not to this day met 90% of faculty in my school. I've seen them all on Zoom, but I haven't physically met a vast majority. So it, it, that's weird. It's funny. You know, so even though I'm finishing my first year, I feel like this fall when everybody starts coming back more close to full time, that will feel like again, like another first year because I'll get a chance to start meeting people. Yeah, that's uh, actually quite a common thing we're hearing from students, as well as uh, we had a, a dean of Wayne State's School of Medicine, Dr. Mark Schweitzer, uh, on the podcast as well, who switched from, I think, NYU to Wayne State in the middle of the pandemic as well. So we've had a number of uh, really well-known people on the podcast, including Arianna Huffington and Chelsea Clinton. You're among those lists of extremely well-known, recognizable folks. How does a uh, physician, a public health researcher and professor wind up becoming so well-known and a trusted voice? Do you mind walking our audience through a bit how that happened? Sure. Well, so I've done media stuff and have always tried to figure out how to translate my research for other people for a long time. But, but obviously, the pandemic changed everything. Right. It was really early March that became obvious that we were headed towards a lot of trouble. What we did, our, I was still at Harvard we, running the Global Health Institute, is we started building models for what hospital capacity was going to look like in the U.S. and, and was America going to be able to manage uh, the surge of cases. Uh, that really was the underlying data for a lot of the kind of flatten the curve and stay at home. And, and as we were doing that work, uh, it really became clear to me that as a country, we had not been preparing for this pandemic. Certainly by late January, it was very clear that we were going to end up having a global pandemic. And yet we wasted all of February and early March. And so I started raising the alarm and I started talking about why this was important. When the media stuff started happening in early to mid-March, my mental model was there'll be a couple of weeks of media and then the government will really take over. CDC will start doing daily briefings. Everybody will start hearing from Tony Fauci. And then no one's going to need to hear from me because if you get Tony Fauci, you don't need me. And so my mental model was a couple of weeks of media, it'll die out, it'll be fine. And I'll tell you, just like it never really stopped. By the end of March, early April, I was getting 100 to 150 media requests a day. Obviously, can't physically do that. And I went for a while. Then I decided, like, I thought, is this a good use of my time? Should I just stop? 
And I started talking to friends and family. And, you know, because in the beginning, it's kind of fun, you're on TV. But then the question was, is this useful? Is this making any kind of a difference? And I think what I came to realize from the feedback I got was one of the key things that happens in a pandemic is people are scared. They don't know what's happening. And if you can help both alleviate fear, but also help guide people on decision-making, that's what public health people should be doing. That's what physicians do on a one-on-one -on -one basis, right? In the clinic or in the hospital, we alleviate fear. We help people make better decisions. And I felt like that was my responsibility. So I've continued. Again, when I switched to a new job, I had to cut back a bit more. But I felt like it's an important part of all of our responsibilities as physicians, as public health people, to speak out and, and help the American people through this difficult time. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And as far as the question of whether it's making a difference, I remember the op-ed you wrote on uh, the COVID pandemic in India as it was surging just a couple of months ago yeah. um, and the impact that had on the public consciousness and, and getting the administration to send a lot of vaccines and other oxygen over to India. That felt like a bit of a different thing. It was obviously very personal to you, yeah. to me, not a single Indian American doesn't have family who've been infected in some way. Our chief medical officer, Rishi, who's himself been on TV a couple of times, got went viral for a Fox News interview he had done I remember back that. in March. Um, you know, he's had some family members pass away in India because of it. And so, you know, that felt different personal and obviously did have an impact. I'm sure when you wrote that, there was a ton of follow-up yeah. and, and how best to address it and spur the US to take action, right? Yeah, no, that was an interesting process. And part of it was, it was very clear to a lot of us, right, that India was getting into a lot of trouble and the Biden administration was not being responsive enough or not moving fast enough. And I have a lot of friends in the Biden administration. They're good people. I just think they can get distracted and lots of other stuff on their plate, but they weren't moving as quickly as they needed to. And so I started talking to my friends in the Biden administration and saying, we really have to push the administration of the White House to move. And a lot of them said, OK, fine, if we do that, what do we need? You know, and then I thought, well, I can tell you what I think India needs. But what I did was I called senior people in the Ministry of Health of India. And I said, here's what I think you need. But what do you really need? And through that kind of triangulated and came up with a list of things and both shared it with, with the administration, but then also wrote it up as an op-ed in the Washington Post. There were lots of other people who were saying very similar sets of things. And I think the administration responded not out of pressure, but because we help the administration have a path forward. You know, it's, they get yelled at a lot for all sorts of things. And I think instead of yelling and saying, you're doing badly or you're not doing enough, it's much more constructive to say, here are three things you could do because it lets good people have a path forward, a path ahead. So it was an important moment. And it was a moment where I think public health leaders uh, came together with the administration to, to make a difference in India. And it was meaningful. I have a lot of family in India who've, who've gotten sick as well. And so I think we all felt a moral responsibility to act. That's a good kind of transition to the next question, which is, you know, what is your current assessment? We're speaking in July 2021 of the trajectory of COVID in the U.S. and globally. In the U.S., I think we're seeing a bifurcation and certainly globally as well. But let's talk about the U.S. first. You know, I live uh, in Massachusetts. I work in Rhode Island. These are highly vaccinated states. And I expect that as vaccinations continue to rise in these states, Delta variant will maybe be a nuisance, but I don't expect it to cause large outbreaks. I don't expect it to harm our hospitals. And we all have to be a little bit careful, but mostly I think, you know, we can kind of go about our daily business. 
And I suspect that there may be more variants down the road, but they're unlikely to fundamentally challenge our vaccines. That's Massachusetts, that's not Missouri. And Missouri is different. Their vaccine rates are much lower and you have parts of Missouri where hospitalizations have gotten bad enough that they're shipping patients to other hospitals. Uh, the CEO of one of the largest hospital systems in Springfield, Missouri is tweeting he needs more ventilators and more uh, respiratory therapists. When the CEO of a large hospital system goes to Twitter to get more help, it's not a great sign. And we have large chunks of America that are largely unvaccinated and they are at substantial risk. And so I see a very different future for them in the weeks and months ahead with a lot more infections, hospitalizations and deaths, unfortunately. Uh, globally, I could tell the exact same story, right? Western Europe is doing really well on vaccinations. A lot of Western European countries are still struggling with the Delta variant, but I think they'll get it together. Africa as a continent has barely been vaccinated at all. And we're gonna see a lot of infections and suffering in Africa. You know, the difference between the global picture and the US picture is of course, in the global side, there are a lot of countries that just don't have access to vaccines. In the US, the counties and states that are low vaccinations, they have plenty of access in the traditional sense but they have not gotten vaccinated for a variety of other reasons, misinformation among others uh, that are really holding people back. Speaking of misinformation, uh, you know, we had the editor-in-chief of WebMD, Dr. John White, who I'm sure you know. Um, I do, yeah. On the podcast as well. And we, one of the main questions I wanted to ask him and, and be curious your thoughts on is how do we get uh, people trusting in experts and institutions again? Do you have any recommendations or, or things that have to happen to get us to a truthful world again and a more realistic world? I think this is the biggest challenge of our time. I think people underappreciate the power of the information ecosystems that we all live in. All of us, uh, we live in an ecosystem where we hear certain messages and then we hear those messages reinforced and amplified. And when people live in a very different information ecosystem than ours, don't be surprised if they have very different world beliefs. You know, as you might imagine, because I'm pretty public. I get a lot of uh, everything from hate mail to voicemails. And this voicemail left on my voicemail uh, literally yesterday by a woman who's a grandmother. She just pleaded with me to not spread lies about vaccines. She said, these vaccines are killing people across the country. She said, I've watched you on TV. You seem like a good person. I don't understand why you're spreading these lies. And I think she meant it. She, didn't, she wasn't being dishonest. She meant it. And it made me think first, like I wonder what she hears in her daily life that makes her believe that doctors and nurses are out there spreading lies to make a buck. Second is she's not dumb and she's not a bad person. And we have to find ways of reaching out to people who live outside our information ecosystem and engaging them. I do think that there's that personal responsibility that all of us have to talk to people who are not part of our bubble. But I also think this is one where it's individual action alone won't work. We also need responsibility from things like Facebook. Almost all the misinformation is spread via Facebook. And Facebook can't forever say, well, we have no responsibility. We're just a platform. At some point, they have to realize that they are the source and the cause of tens of millions of people around the world who are going to get infected and many, many who will die because of stuff they read on that platform. So I'm hoping to see a bit more action from some of these platforms, especially really blocking some of the most uh, noxious disinformation campaigns. Um, that combination, I think, makes me, if we can do that, but it's going to be, this is going to be the struggle for years. This is not going to end with 
this pandemic and we're gonna have to continue working on this. Absolutely. And, and it's one reason, you know, we, so we, we had KX Jang, who's the head of Facebook health and uh, Garth Graham, who you may also know is that of YouTube health. And we partner with YouTube to develop content around, you know, vaccines and awareness with them and the CDC, because right now what the platforms have done, I know is they've put like disclaimers on different content, whether it's the election January 6th or it's public health information, but um there's a lot of debate whether that's enough or are we in an age of censorship, et cetera. No, I will say, I think the different platforms are a bit different. Like I actually think YouTube has done a good job in this space. I, I, they could do better. Um, but I, I find Google and I mean, YouTube obviously a subsidiary of Google and, and Alphabet in general has been more proactive on this. And I think when they are, we should laud them for it, right? And we should uh, say, hey, thanks for, thanks for being better stewards of our information ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we're coming up in time, so I had uh, just a few more questions. The, the first is the reason we call the podcast Raising the Line is, as you can imagine, it's what your research is focused on, which is do we have enough healthcare capacity for this pandemic and for future pandemics, whether viral or chronic disease like diabetes? You know, what are your recommendations for ways post-COVID can invest, whether it's investing in public health or training more healthcare workers or whatever it may be, the most impactful recommendations you would have for us to raise the line? It's a really good question. And I, I love your podcast. And for a variety of reasons, not only is it just fun, but also uh, because you're raising the issue around health systems that I think is critical in the following way. You know, one of the debates that often goes on in healthcare is, well, how much does healthcare really matter and how much do health systems matter? Because all these things outside of healthcare end up having this effect on health. And it's true. Obviously, environment matters. Climate change is going to end up being a major stress on the public health world and people's health, pandemics, uh, chronic diseases. But you know what's interesting is all of that, at the end of the day, gets confronted through a health system. When we couldn't control the outbreak in New York or in Missouri right now, it's the health system that manages it. When we couldn't control it in the public health space in India, it was health systems that got crushed. So we need strong, robust health systems as the ultimate safety net for people's health and well-being. And we don't have that in much of the world. So then the question is, how do we get it? And here's where I think we need to think a little bit differently. You know, for 50 years, we've had these mental models of, oh, we need this many doctors, this many nurses. Sure, a lot of countries. And I'm going to think about India, for instance. Oh, sure, it needs a lot more doctors and nurses. But it's got to be more than that. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is realizing there are millions of people out there in India providing healthcare. They're often untrained or they're poorly trained or uh, they may be community health workers. And instead of constantly saying we need more doctors and more nurses, which we do, is let's take the people who are already there and figure out how to augment them, how to make them better. How do we use technology to build up their skills and what they're capable of? I think that interface between frontline health workers and technology and investing there is going to end up being the most powerful way we're going to strengthen health systems around the world. And so I want to spend a little less time saying how many more millions of doctors do we need to train? And I want to spend a little more time talking about the folks who are already there. How do we make them better? Yeah, exactly. How do we scale them? And there's been a, a boon in digital health and, and uh, consumer-driven healthcare and value-based medicine. So I think a lot of those trends are going in the right way. I agree. My second last question is, you know, we have an audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals. What advice would you give to them about pursuing their careers in healthcare and meeting the challenges of COVID and, and post-COVID? I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, 
it's an awesome career, right? If you're thinking about it or you're beginning, it is a great career. I have to tell you, the thing that I have found, I mean, on a personal level, the worst is over the last year, I wasn't able to practice medicine because I was switching jobs in the middle of the pandemic. I'm now in a new state. I got recredentialed and I'm starting back up on the wards again in a couple of weeks. And I am so excited. And like, you know, I've been practicing medicine for 20 years and I still am like so incredibly excited and, and feel like I can't believe I missed a whole year without practicing. It's a way of reminding people there's nothing as meaningful, as much of a privilege as being a, a physician who can take care of patients. So if you're interested in being a practitioner, it's awesome. Second is there's another kind of important role when you are a provider is people trust you and you become a trusted voice. And so in middle of health crises, it's incredibly important that you speak up and back science and talk about data and talk about evidence. Because if you don't, other people will step in and fill that void and they're not gonna do what you can do. So it's not just a privilege to have that platform, but it's an obligation to use it well. That's some wonderful advice. My last question, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to be able to convey to our audience? Yeah, maybe I'll finish with the following, you know, which is one of the questions I often got asked last year and still do sometimes this year is people say, you know, when are we going back to normal? And I would say, well, what do you mean normal? And they say, well, you know what life looked like before the pandemic. And my answer was, you mean 2019? Never. We're never going back to 2019. And that's okay. It's actually not a problem because there's no reason to think 2019 was the greatest year in human history. You know, pandemics change societies, but how they change societies is largely up to us. And so there is a moment now and in the next six to 12 to 18 months, but not forever, where a lot of things that we took for granted that we felt couldn't be changed, whether they are systemic inequities in our society, whether they are the way we pay for healthcare, the way we think about social determinants, how we, do we really invest in global partnership? Things that felt really, really hard to move, they just got a lot easier to move. And so what I would ask all of your listeners is use this moment to say, how do I make our society better? How do I move the needle on things that are important because this is the moment to do it. It won't be here in five years, it won't be here in 10. It wasn't around five years ago. And that's the big silver lining of what has otherwise been a pretty horrible pandemic. That's uh, extremely well said and uh, reminds me of the 2008 response of a crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste. So hopefully we can all make use of this crisis to, as you said, move the dial in healthcare. So Dr. Jot, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you've done to educate the world about the pandemic. And, and I'm really glad to hear you're going back to practice soon. I'm looking forward to it. And again, thanks for having me here, Shiv. I really enjoyed it and take good care and uh, uh, hope to stay in touch. Likewise. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>